Oh, also, wait, Jeremy, yeah. what are you from Imagine Malaysia or Malaysia Muda? Let's do Malaysia Muda. Okay. Right. Oh, I've got a lot of stuff I need to say in this intro. I'll just quickly write it down. It might take me a few attempts, I'll just. We're here for you. Yeah, I'll just edit it. Hmm. So. Hello once again, long time no listen. Um, it's me with my dear friend Sahai Samai Deng Tun Tin. What's up, uh, Wong Ai? My name Mark. And uh, also joined by repeat. Now repeat guest, uh, Jeremy Lim from Imagined, uh, not Imagine Malaysia, goddammit, I even asked 20 seconds ago, Malaysia Muda. No worries, I go by both. What's up, what's up? Yeah, whatever. Also check out uh, Imagine Malaysia since you're here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jeremy was with us on episode, uh, I don't know the number, which was about... Uh, Malaysia. What was it about Malaysia? Um, but today, dear listener, we're going a little deeper, or a little wider, casting our net a little wider, I guess we could say. Um, and part of this is actually quite heavily brought on by Jeremy, because uh, Jeremy has been a repeat visitor in real life to the uh, Dinden Bunker. And uh, on these visits, we have... At great length, and you may not know this, listener, that Jeremy is is, is quite the student of uh, 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 economics and uh, stuff like you know, like actual like stuff that's too boring for us to kind of think yeah, about. Yeah. But Jeremy actually like knows about it. Economists would disagree with you because I don't do the math that they do. But <laughs> whatever it is you do, I don't even fully understand. But Jeremy's very very smart. Yeah. So it's the argument uh, about not knowing anything about basic economics because Jeremy knows advanced economics. Exactly. Cool. <laughs> so, hmm, there you go. Um, and so, on on our sojourns in the bunker, we have at great length kind of discussed the shape of the uh, well of the kind of I guess what we can call the current capitalist economy and what it actually kind of is, which I think is something that is perhaps not discussed actually very much in the West or the North, as we'll say today, nor in the Global South, really. So, yeah. And um, I'm sorry for prattling on a bit, but I do have to bring up this, uh, the kind of foundation of this episode, uh, which was the article... I can't even remember what the name of the article was that we published on Dindang. Oh, you mean proletarian revolution in the Global North is impossible? Ding, ding, ding. That's the one yeah. that is correct. Yeah, it's a bit of a... Um, I don't know if you're listening now, you've read it. I suggest maybe reading it. It's very long. Maybe don't read it. It's too long. <laughs> um, At least read the article itself. If you want to leave out the responses, I think that's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, just read the responses. Yeah. Um, so, like, the, the, the title is a little bit clickbaity. Um, so, the article is a... Is a Collective endeavor in many regards. Um, it came about from an initial thesis by myself. Well, it wasn't even a thesis. It was like 
this 500% number, which we'll get into, um, about like what is what is the UK economy made of? And, you know, we had a lot of contributions from Sahai Min, Sahai A Oh no, he doesn't go by that name, Sahai, whatever his nickname is. Uh, Jeremy, uh, Samai as well. No, I, I only edited uh, it. Yeah, well, that's still a job. Yeah. And, oh, and also, uh, Sahai Beep, uh, um, Yep. We can say a comrade from Malaysia, kind of, who I think made, like, a really great point, which kind of illustrated it quite well. And it's kind of stuck with me when he said, um, when I asked him if he's involved in any uh, political organizing in the UK, and he said no. And I said, why? And he said... Uh, because I don't really think the UK should exist. <laughs> and I was like, ah, that's a great basis to start from, right? Yep. Um, so I've been talking too long. Um, I, I, I just want to say I like yeah. how all, all of this came about from one Google search that you couldn't quite figure out. <laughs> Thank you. Right, that's where I wanted to go next. So actually, you were the, this you, me and you on Instagram messaging at like, midnight was how this came about right? oh wait what do you remember when i messaged you on um instagram and i said what percentage of the uk economy is the financial sector oh yeah that's when this started sure because i couldn't figure it out mm, yep right and that led us to like this thing of like what is what what does uh uh capital actually look like now in, in the UK and we kind of expanded on it from there. But um, yeah, so initially when you Google what is the the size of the, no, sorry, what is the, yeah, the size of the financial sector in the UK economy, you get a lot of really diluted answers, right? I'll just quickly interject that I think governments love to do this. Like I, I don't know why the Malaysian government would be covering for the global financial elite, but in Malaysia... Like they have a set of numbers for the finance in insurance real estate sector from the 80s to the year 2000, a different mm. categorization from 2000 to 2010, and then mm. another set of categorizations from 2011 onwards. And that means you can't make actually a comparison how big the sector has grown because they keep changing the categories. I don't know if ah. the, the British government does this, but that so was my British, trouble. The British government do something slightly different. Which is that when they uh, they they measure economic output in their mm. in their numbers, which it, which doesn't actually show the size of the sector, right? It shows what it produces, which is, which is a different all, thing. Which is fuck all exactly. Well, in the financial, yeah. <laughs> um, so so basically, I couldn't. Yeah, so I messaged Samai. So I'm lying in bed trying to sleep, but I want to know how much of the UK economy is financial services. That's that's the that's the original message. I isn't found it. it. Okay, I read found it, it. Read it. Read it. Um, <laughs> so, it just so really I go to look online. Marcus, so. Okay, the highest sector is indeed services at seventy nine percent. Jesus mm -hmm. fucking Christ, that's high. But of that percentage, how mug is financial services? I literally can't find it anywhere. I've been looking for like 40 minutes for such a basic and hugely important piece of information and I can't fucking find it. For fuck's sake, I just want to sleep. What the fuck is going on? And then yeah. I say, it's a conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. And then it goes on and on and then... I think you said that ironically, but you were correct. Yes, no, I um, did say it ironically, yeah. So, so eventually... 
I found after many hours of laboring, I just went straight to the Bank of England and I looked yep. there. And then that's how we found the 500% number. And so I'm going to need Jeremy to explain this because the size of the financial sector in the UK economy is around 500% of GDP. And um, I, I've said that so many times now because I've done so much fucking research for this article. But um, I think I messaged Jeremy like that morning being like, can you explain this to me? <laughs> yeah, so... And I'll just quickly caveat. This is not the same as um, in the US because in the US... Uh, another set of Marxist economists looked into this and it says that US debt is 500% of their mm. GDP. So they did, logically what that means is that you need $1 of debt to create 20 pence of growth. Um, for the UK one, because that chart, the chart you were looking at was assets and liabilities, yeah. And it's very likely a lot of those are liabilities because how how the banks operate... No, 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 no. it is, it is, sorry. It's 500 liability, 518 liabilities, 513 assets. Holy fuck. Okay, well... Right, so it's, yeah. The asset side is, can be a bit deceiving because that just means that they may have just some loans because, you know, if... If you, wait, wait, wait. Can we, can, we, can we pause quickly? What are assets and what are liabilities? So, f okay. So this, this doesn't work conventionally like other things, right? Because if mm. you own a car, technically you own an asset, right? Yes. But that under this financial system... Some, where you, something that's worth money. Yeah, something that's worth money. Yeah. Under this financial system, um, you probably technically own the car... But the bank could take it back from you if you fail to pay the monthly payment or whatever, right? Okay. So you may own the asset, but technically the bank owns a, another form of an asset, which is your loan. You know, What when, if I don't have a loan or a mortgage? I think I want to try and explain this more in financial terms. Okay. And an asset is just owning something. Okay, so what's a liability then? That's debt, right? So that's when, like, in this case, is this yep. when a bank owns debt? So it could be personal debt, business debt, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. But for, okay, but for the bank, your debt, uh -huh. which is your liabilities, is their asset, right? Whenever, there's always, a, there's always the sort of duality. You have to see it as your loan is their right, asset. Right. And so yeah. when you look at that 500 and 500 figure, you have to think they owe 500, like there's lots of money they owe on top of the fact that those assets are just loans, right? And that's why when the financial crisis goes down, when all the people who don't pay them the money that they are owed their losses go off the chain. Yeah, so that's what happened in 2008. Yeah. So you have to yeah. think about liabilities and assets in very different ways when it comes to the so, financial so, sector. So so how is it 500%? How can it be more bigger than the actual size of the economy itself? That's because people can buy financial instruments that have no relation to production. So this goes into what you were talking about in the article. It's completely mm. disconnected from the real economy. So in essence... You know, if you even if you think about it at a very basic level, right? 
what did stock ownership used to mean? You know, if three of us set up a company, we sell uh-huh. stock to somebody else, that the person we sold the stock to is expecting a return when we make money, right? Yeah. That's no longer the world we live in. People buy Apple stock because they think the price of Apple stock will go up, not because mm-hmm. they think Apple makes money. That's completely outside the calculation. So this is just a very shorthand example of the way it's disconnected. There are other ways it's disconnected insofar as that during the financial crisis, like people, banks and like mortgage providers were just passing loans around and charging each other's fees, inflating the prices and all of that. Go ahead. I still don't quite get why. And I, I like even after having spoken with you at length about this, <laughs> I still don't quite understand how it can be 500. Also, I think we forgot about foreign holdings as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I still don't quite understand how, how, why they don't just factor in that 500% as part of the 100% of the wider GDP. GD- is it because GDP of what is they what can you produce? So, right. So the, oh, and it's not. Okay, go on. So this is just the amount of loans that they give out and the loans that are on their books. For instance, if you owe the money or they owe somebody money, this is the figure that's reflected. That means that the financial sector has created so much more money in the system that it's become 500 times bigger than whatever you make in a year. It's just about the amount of money they've created and put into the system as a whole. Mm. Yeah. Wait, Samai, are you you with us? I'm, I'm following along. (laughs) <laughs> okay good uh, the only thing um, I can think about right now is um, when Charlie turns to Frank and he says what does uh, whatever the company's name actually do and, and Frank's like what do you mean uh, well, like, what does it make he's like yeah it makes money <laughs> it's like, that's exactly what a bank does <laughs> yeah so so also there's like this residency basis thing as well which I I remember you explaining to me once but I don't remember yeah, foreign assets, right? So the UK economy has more foreign assets and liability than any other major economy. So that's what it says in this Bank of England chart. Yeah, so the UK has been known to be... There's some really complicated stuff that I won't go into, but like the UK is also like one of those big... We, we talk about Singapore and Luxembourg laundering money for the world, but I think mm. UK really takes a lot when it comes to this stuff um, because you know it's also seen as a stable economy that makes shit. But, um, you know, some people might contend that differently. So that's, this is just representative of the amount of capital that flows in and Mm. the amount of capital that flows out. Because if you know anything about the financial crisis, you know that British banks, or the way the banking system works, right? The reason all of it ground to a halt was everybody uh, was passing money back to each other, like back and forth. In the US, Mm -hmm. all the investment banks lent each other money. And so when the financial crisis hit, People were like calling loans that they were owed while they were being called for loans that they owed and nobody had money. Mm -hmm. And so everybody looked at each other like, okay, shall we just go ask the Fed for money? And they did. Um, And so I guess that's that's goes for the UK financial system also. It's embroiled in German banks, uh, French banks, Spanish banks. It was probably locked up in all the real estate that went bust in Spain all the mm. shit that went down in Greece was probably also related because it's so interrelated. You actually have to trace what one bank does. Where does it go to the next bank? And it goes down a very long chain. So mm. I guess all in all, the 
the way you should think about that 500% figure is the exposure that the UK has, right? So if all these like fake pieces of paper that's supposed to represent money shrink in value even just a little bit, that means it shrinks by maybe like 100 to 200%. And that has knock-on effects in the real economy because mm. when people start selling stock, companies lose the ability to operate normally. And I don't know, and this goes into some really technical stuff, like lots of lots of big name companies, I think in the UK, um, I can't name any examples in the UK, but in the US, for instance, GM, the guys who make cars, apparently yeah. the, sec- the, the arm of the GM company that makes the most money is their financial services. And they lend money to people yeah. to buy their cars on top of uh, dealing in things. What? Yeah. And so, you know. Oh, that's so clever. So finance is in everything. And every big company yeah. has a financial arm and yeah. is tied into the financial economy. And so when there's a panic in the system, when all those banks locked up, everybody mm. got frozen. When everyone out. realizes that there's not actually money or, yeah, I think, right? <laughs> It, it, it gets into some pretty scary stuff because like, uh, okay. I don't know if you heard about these things called repo markets, is repurchase agreements. And so basically, yeah. banks lend each, oh no, corporations and banks lend each other money on a daily basis. Mm. I can lend you a hundred million like pounds for today mm. and I mm. want the rest of it tonight. And I'll, we'll come back to this agreement again tomorrow morning. <laughs> And that's what happens in a financial crisis. Hundreds of yeah. mid- billions, not if not trillions of dollars and pounds were all just locked up because everybody was like, no, I'm not showing up to give you the 100 million I did yesterday. Yeah. So this is, this is the world we kind of live in. Like finance has grown so big. And you mm. might think like, okay, if finance is not tied to the reco- real economy, it can't, it can't really fuck me, right? But well, go ahead. Yeah, this is, this is what I was, this is was going to be further down and uh, maybe yeah. we should quickly get to it now, which is like, is money actually tied to material? Is it or not? I don't, I actually don't know. It, it is and it isn't. So a lot ah, of this, damn it. unfortunately, the answer is a little more complex because whenever financial crisis happen, you know, these kind of panics that cause the market to, you know, basically start selling off stocks, Money doesn't flow through the system. And if you think about that, an example of that repossession agreement, those repo markets, right? Mm. If companies need some of those loans to pay, you know, um, employee salaries, that Mm. could mean that they run out of money if they can't get a new loan to pay salaries and to buy new stock. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a panic, Banks no longer want to hand out loans. That means companies can't get loans to buy capital and and pay employees. That's the mm-hmm. way it has a knock-on effect. But where it starts is just a panic. But but outside of the context of some kind of crash, like particularly when there's talk of or when there is quantitative easing, for example, mm. which is when the government literally just hands money to businesses, right? Yep. Um is that money tied to anything material, right? Because because the kind of, how to say, the genesis of the concept of money... Okay, here's, here's, a, here's maybe a better way of, of phrasing it. If 
there's more money in the world, does that mean that the world is producing more stuff? No. Ah. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. The answer is no, because if you take a theoretical country that only makes bananas, printing mm. more money will just, yeah, like those most monetaries believe would just cause inflation. Um, mm -hmm. But this, but the way finance is able to make money is because, you know, it inflates, it has to inflate an asset, right? So in, mm. in the past, they would, yeah. <laughs> in this, my head already. <laughs> this would get complicated. Not that, not, not that complicated. Um, but basically, if you remember the 2008 financial crisis, house prices went up. Yeah. Right? And that meant they could sell bigger loans and therefore they would create more money from, you can go and Google it, the fractional reserve system. Um, so do you want to get into what the fractional no. reserve system is? <laughs> How banks make money? I, <laughs> I think, I think, I think you're, you, you've like made the point really well, which is kind of like what the economy in the Northern countries or the West like is, right? Which is kind of a... It's a fucking How would you mess. describe... Huh? It's a really big fucking mess. Like, um, yeah, uh. they made it so complicated, right? They've interlocked finance with so many things that you can't really trace who pays your bill, who pays your salary yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know? Because it's then so the reason, yeah, why capitalism is able to keep going is because it's created this network that benefits from fees. Everybody pays a fee to pass money up a chain, uh. and so. You know, that's that's where we're at. Everybody's making money off fees. <laughs> so this is you're talking about like that that's what financial services are. Yeah. Right. Because okay, so that that's a nice kind of circle. Um which was from the original question, right? Which is like <laughs> what is the financial sector? So Maya, you okay? You look a bit I uh, I am fine. Uh Okay. I I'm just yeah, like uh, no, I think like uh, like Jeremy said, I don't know who pays my bills. Well, I know who pays my mm. bills, but it's hard for me parents. to figure out any form <laughs> of fucking like where does like if I put a dollar in somewhere, where does it come out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. Mm, that's a good point because it's like someone um, so, someone's got that dollar. If I if it's in the bank, some other bank's got it now. Right, and then and then some other some investment companies got it now. Some hedge fund, like, like my dollar is just like disappeared. And if I ever want it back, I'm probably gonna be like, I, I'd like it back. And then they'll say, oh, <laughs> well, um, I don't have it right now. But your dollar never existed. It, it never existed in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so this brings us to kind of one of the main points of the article, which is which is talking about the financial sector as the primary, what did we say? Mode of production, right? That's one, uh, is the driver of the economy now. Let's not call yeah. it mode of production because I think that the, the mode of production debate is about capitalism versus feudalism or slavery or whatever. Yeah. Ah, uh, I think when we, oh, primary, primary mode of production, right. I think when we wrote that, we were referring to we were using it in the same way that Jip Pumisak used it right Samai because uh, I remember talking to you about see, this let me see because no you did hold on you yeah. did bloody contribute to this article even though you, you, you don't you didn't just edit it uh, I remember I, now I don't we remember had, like, lengthy this, was, conversations. this was months ago 
<laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, but it was like after we, <coughs> after you had written the Jip Pumisak one, yeah. which is kind of like some relatively, yeah, hard economic shit. And so you were on a bit of that tint back then. Well, yeah, because no, we were talking I, I about, was, yeah, because it's like um, uh, most of the money, most of the wealth in the economy comes from the agricultural or the industrial sector. So that's what I was referring to. Mm. And then, yeah, so yeah, if yeah. you say that most of the wealth in the economy comes from the financial services, financial sector, then that's what that's what we probably meant well, by the phrase primary mode of production. Yep, I think it also means that like it's the the direction of the economy. Ah, so, like, ah, we were talking because I was because yeah. yeah, I was talking about the emergence of um like like from feudalism to capitalism, uh the emergence of uh industrial manufacturing as the as a pr- pr- as initially a secondary mode of production, but then it became the primary mode. Exactly. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know the same way that we lived in in, in the um, beginning of capitalism and with the primary mode of production being industrial manufacturing and now sort of, you know, I think the argument that services we're making is that and, it's now services yeah. and obviously... Well, financial services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I think, I think and then the, 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 like, also the way that JIT phrases it, and I'm sorry, I don't know that many Western Marxists, <laughs> so like JIT, Purisak is my kind of compass for this. No that's funny, that's um, so funny. I, I, you know what, people, uh, that sounds like I'm virtue signaling, I'm honestly not, like I legit have not No, I know much. him, he doesn't um, know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, um, neither do I. <laughs> uh, that's why Jeremy's here. Yeah, so, so exactly. Anyway, the way G- Jeremy is of, the Western Marxist. Exactly. Uh, uh, the Malaysian kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the way Jit phrases it is, is like when, for example, agriculture was the primary mode of production. Mm-hmm. Everything in the economy was. Oriented all, all towards labor, all products, yeah. yeah, were made towards cementing agriculture yeah. or like working for yeah. agriculture, yeah. right? So, like for example, somebody who made tools, well, those tools were going to be used for agricultural tools, or somebody yeah. who bakes bread, although they didn't bake bread in feudal Thailand. Somebody who breaks bread, whatever, yeah. um, that bread was going to be eaten by agricultural laborers. And then taxes were were, were based on land ownership and paid towards mm. landowners, as opposed to because paid on ownership, as opposed to paid by like craftsmen, paid to craftsmen or paid to yeah. like um, uh, people who made the tools and owned tools and that kind of thing. So like the, that, the kind of capital, the concept of capital itself was not was still in its um, its infancy. Yeah, and then like, but then like everything, all economic activity was under this umbrella of agriculture. Yeah, and then it kind of like, and then Jit makes an argument that it kind of like moved on to being about like industry. Yeah, right. And then he died. Yeah, and now we can say like, now we got to figure it out from here. Now we got to figure it out because Jit's dead. So it's like services, and then I would kind of argue now that it's like financial services, right? So like. And the, the, the argument that we made in the article was that, oh, this is something that Mean was saying, is that like everything which is done within the economy, whether it's the person driving the train, whether it's uh, someone selling shoes, whether it's someone serving coffee at a cafe, or whether it's the banker in the fucking bank, right? doing all this algorithmic fucking calculations. This is all in service of the financial sector yeah. because financial services are this mammoth 
plus 500% thing in the economy. Yeah. So of course everything works towards the financial sector. Does does that make sense, yeah. Jeremy? If if we if we look at it from like the the Pumi sec. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Cuz cuz that goes to something uh that mentioned in his response that says that it shouldn't be seen purely as now all the I don't want to say all of the West. I think uh, much of the US, the UK, places like Luxembourg, a lot of these places are not just places that do finance. Why mm-hmm. he says that what they also do is they coordinate um, production around the world from which the capital for these financial centers are raised. So that sure. that's, a, that's something important to keep in mind that uh, it's not just that, yeah, all we do is, all they do is finance. There's and finance by itself, there's an easy way to say that it's not very exploitative, right? Because it's further up the chain. You might forget that it actually does, you know, employ... It do, it's related to sweatshops in Bangladesh. But when you think about the way finance works in tandem with this global value chain coordination, then you see that there is a really exploitative kind of aspect to finance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like like it's um you know sort of international financial institutions will come together and like agree upon a set of term and terms and then that in itself will 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 serve wealth production which in itself serves the financial sector but then it targets specifically industry in uh, various parts of the world um, in order to facilitate uh, uh, more uh, uh, material extraction. wealth. More extraction, which then goes towards uh, the financial sector, and then yada yada yada. So yeah, um, you know, I, I think that definitely even um, non-financial services uh, production uh, um, activity, I'll say, mm. um, is in service of services of financial services. Yeah, financial so services. so so sorry, just to like put that in context of what I said before. So like Jeremy, we build computers right today, so we can have call centers. Huh? We 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 um, we we manufacture computers so we can have call centers. Uh. Right. <laughs> so 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 what what the point is then that okay it's not just that everything in the UK is in service of the financial services but everything in the world is is that what you're kind of suggesting? It's centered around it in a way. Finance finance has sort of situated itself as the center in a way that if you think about it in the past, it was the industrialists that run the world. Now it's hedge funds that run the world. And yeah. like, um, I think this is, this came up from like a left liberal economist, Adam Toos, but he, no, sorry, Mark Blythe. You can Google these if you want, but basically they try and say that there's a new type of capitalism, asset manager capitalism. And you can go and Google it. There's this article by this guy named Benjamin Braun. Um, basically says that, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, and I think State... Yeah, yeah, State City or something. Another another asset manager basically controls, like, large sections of the world economy. And these guys get to dictate, like, everything. So it's... But this is a financial... In, in that sense, it's a financial institution of sorts. So this is sort of my illustration of how it's moved from, you know, Bill Gates used to run the world, now it's these hedge funds, yeah. Mm. So in that sense, so, I agree with you that the shift has occurred globally. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, but I guess it varies too much from country to country because we can't say Germany doesn't make anything. Right? Yeah, yeah. But can we say that the UK doesn't make anything? Ooh. I think the UK likes to think it makes things. Um, and as your article... It makes me case. sad. <laughs> so, why do you mean that, you know, the fact that we don't... The UK no, I makes think that sad. the UK makes me sad. That's what it makes. <laughs> um, yes. Because like you said, like, you know, so much of that is outsourced. Much of, A lot of the stuff is assembled here. Um, mm. So, basically... Yeah, if those if those countries stop supplying parts, the UK doesn't technically make anything except maybe some wheat and I think you guys yeah. still have sheep and cows and beer. Not not yeah. Uh I think we do do milk. Um Oh, well, <laughs> that was that's a whole thing in it. That's that's a whole thing. Yeah, though. the milk is a um, whole thing. Oh my uh, god. So so I wanted to actually mention this right later, but fuck it, let's do it now. Sure. So Oh yeah, we talked about this the other day when we were walking the dog, Jeremy. Which was um, where do where do Heinz beans come from? Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, you couldn't so, figure like, it out, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I started to. So I like literally like sat down with a tin of Heinz beans, which said produced in the UK, mm-hmm. and I tried to figure out where it was actually from, and weirdly, the beans themselves actually come from America. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, from from Northern America, like uh, like uh, Michigan, uh, uh, Illinois, like those kind of areas, and supposedly, not sure if this is true or not, the tomatoes come from California, like in the tomato sauce that the beans are in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, to figure this kind of stuff out, you have to go on this uh, on on the Heinz website. They have a list of all the people that supply them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say like what those companies supply, so you have to look at like each individual <laughs> company and try to figure out what those companies do, which yeah. is a fucking task in itself. And then quite often you're looking at those subsidiary companies also have subsidiary companies who supply them and then you have to do the whole, you know, puzzle piecing thing again. So like I did find some in California that supplied tomatoes. And so that's why I say California, but you know what, there might be other ones yeah. that produce tomatoes in like France or probably Spain. Um, so I'm not, I don't fucking know, basically. And then also, potentially, it's tomato sauce, right? So potentially, the tomatoes are grown in, I don't know, Argentina, and processed there and turned into some kind of uh, dehydrated thing, which is then rehydrated in England. Mm-hmm. The beans, those are dehydrated in the States, rehydrated in England, and then <laughs> it's made in England. Guys, this is the efficiency yeah. of the market. It's the efficiency of the market. <laughs> this is, this is and- the efficiency of the market. By the way, then you've got to figure out shit like the tin in the tin for the beans. Where does that come from? Well, as far as I can figure it out, the tin itself comes from Australia. And I think it's refined in Malaysia as far as I can figure out. But again, not sure Um, because Malaysia, well... We already took all your tin, sorry. Um, (laughs) Well, you, you, your family fucking dug it up for us. Uh, Yeah, probably. (laughs) So... um, where was I? Yeah. So, like, to 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 figure out where shit actually comes from is incredibly, incredibly difficult, and it's incredibly obfuscated intentionally. And then I, I can't. I well, I think so anyway. Conspiracy. And so, like, yeah, <laughs> of course. And so, I was I was thinking about something I said to you, Jeremy. I was like, uh, I don't think 
anybody knows what's in a tin of baked beans. Even Mr. Hines, or doesn't know where it actually comes. He doesn't from. care. I honestly don't think anyone knows, or like even like whoever is responsible for the whole process. I don't think anyone can really tell you, right? Except for the FDA, maybe, because they test that mm. shit. Like they'll they tell you what's it. in it, but they can't tell you where it's from. from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They can't tell you where it's from, but yeah. they'll tell you what's in it. I think there are aspects of woke capitalism that have tried to make sure that you can kind of tell where it's from, because like. I think oh, cocoa beans, yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff, like, you know, to make sure there's no child labor in it, or, yeah. like, so to make sure that your clothes isn't made at a sweatshop. Yeah, okay. but even then, it's these subsidiary companies yeah. hire subsidiary companies who hire subcontractors who hire another subsidiary The, the key company. word is not obvious child labor. Like yeah, not, not obvious. obvious sweatshop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I say certain sectors. Only certain sectors mm. that they care about. For the beans, if the beans were made with child labor, nobody will figure it out. Cocoa because it's high profile, clothes ah, because right. people wear them and like environmentalists be like, oh, why are we throwing away clothes? Let's find out how they're made and then it goes on that. It, I think it only applies for very specific things. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think the fact that Indian farmers were like dying of poisoning, picking cashews, barely mm. makes a blip. Nobody cares mm. that people, because apparently the cashew fruit is poisonous and the people who pluck it I don't know, do yeah. die or some shit? Like, ah, yeah, I remember an Al Jazeera Read the tri-continental people, come on. <laughs> don't eat cashew nuts. <laughs> oh no, they are tasty. They I are tasty. Lie to you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's the high-profile stuff that gets, gets the value chain examined. But I guess it, so, it goes back to your point about, yeah, n- uh, none of those things came from the UK. And so, no. um, is, does it really mean anything to say something is made in the UK, right? And not to mention all like the machinery that assembled all of those components how much of that machinery was made in the uk or where was the the ore that made the metal where was that extracted from right i have no fucking way of figuring this out nobody does i I guess all i can really think about in terms of what the uk actually manufactures now is um I, i guess beef and and like weapons for the israeli government (laughs) <laughs> but those weapons the metal uh, fr- to make yeah, those weapons exactly. where's from, that from? from from elsewhere but it's just exactly. that they're all they're all assembled you know? they're assembled yeah. <laughs> yeah so I mean if we if, well, if we drag it back a bit to the topic of the essay um, mm. yeah so I think that's why there's a bit more discussion nowadays about rather than striking at the point of production you strike at the point of distribution you know like yeah, but that means yeah. that a small in the UK, a small number of dot workers are going to strike. Everybody else who lives on middle income jobs doing art design, finance, um, creative writers are just not going to give a fuck, right? Mm-hmm. The dot workers will strike. Everybody will be against them because they didn't get their beans. Mm-hmm. And so that's just the way it's going to end. So, so I think we should talk about like choke points a little later, but... Um, let's maybe pull the lens back a little bit, which is something that we tried to do in the article and talk about what capitalism actually looks like outside of these heavily financialized economies. Is that the right word to use? Heavily financialized economies? Yes. Okay, good. Um, so for example, Thailand. Yay. Great example. Really, it's a great example because it's like kind of somewhere lower middle, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So like Malaysia, you're kind of like you're kind of like middle middle, you know. We like kinda to think we're like... upper middle, but you know. Oh really? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Thailand's kind of like lower middle. So that is to say, in Thailand, things are still produced on mass. So like, oh, quickly, I just want to say that. In the UK, there are like luxury items which are produced. Like you can go to the bougie farmers market and buy a rhubarb for you know, you know, three pound a stalk or something like that. And yeah. you know that is made in the UK. We're talking mass production here. We're not talking about silly artisanal, uh, decorative production. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, so yeah, in Thailand, for example, things are mass mass produced. For example, yeah, rice, uh, tin stuff. A lot of that, like tinned pineapples, tinned fish, fish sauce, mm-hmm. um, sriracha, uh, yeah. all sorts of shit like that. Uh, and then also like there is industrial manufacturing as well, which it would that factor into the tin stuff? Would that be industrial? I guess it would, right? So I looked up the definition of manufacturing. It, it, yeah. It, it just means to process something. That's yeah, I'm pretty the, sure canneries. Yeah. So then it would canneries yeah. consider are considered in the that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Is. At least in the so, yeah. build selection menu in Tropico Five. Uh, what? <laughs> ignore me. Ignore me. Okay. It's a video game we'll reference. <laughs> <laughs> so so okay, excellent. So, <laughs> um. So then I think like the the comparison that we made was uh Burma and Luxembourg mm-hmm. which is obviously quite absurd Oh but yeah, I remember point. this. Uh so Burma and Luxembourg actually have the same sized economy. Mm-hmm. Um fuck, hold on. Let me pull it up where the actual stats. I think in per capita terms it was 1 to 100 or something. Yeah, so 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 Luxembourg has 0.3% of the land of Burma. Right, mm-hmm. um, and population-wise, oh yeah, one percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and then on top of it, you know, the average citizen in Burma has one percent of the wealth of the average Luxembourgian. Um, Burma produces stuff. Burma makes shit. It makes again, kind of similar to Thailand, but with a bit less industry, like uh, rice and uh, precious metals. And uh, I don't fucking know. We can look it up. Probably Fish. some wood. Yeah. Probably some wood. Uh, stuff wood. like that. Like stuff. Stuff you can touch. Stuff you can eat. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Real stuff. Luxembourg is where all the money is for like Amazon and shit. Mm-hmm. They don't make anything. However, Luxembourg is considered to be, well, for starters, certainly a much more developed economy than Burma. Um, maybe, maybe we should put it this way. Luxembourg makes a lot more money for the people of Luxembourg yep. than Burma makes for the people of Burma, despite the fact that Burma makes stuff and Luxembourg doesn't make anything. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just kind of like how we wanted to illustrate this disparity. <sighs> yeah. Well, yeah. C- clearly, all the Burmese people should get more jobs. Yeah, they're lazy. Yeah, not working lazy. hard enough. Like those Luxembourgians who oh, are working, was, I don't know, a exactly. hundred thousand times yeah. harder. Oh, a hundred. Absolutely, times that's why they're worth so much more money. It is. Yeah. It's it a meritocracy. Is. The real, real life is a meritocracy. <laughs> um. So, hold on. Oh yeah. So this kind of brings us onto the, well, two things. One is this concept of like how capitalism develops, right? So, Jeremy, would you like to kind of? <laughs> 
help us again. So like, you know, we have like the, and we talked about in the Jit Pumisak one, like uh, you have, you know, feudalism, industry, services is the kind of the the free right and 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 i don't know if this is right i've heard a few people say it before which is like oh the uk is the most advanced capitalist country because Mm. capitalism started there here and then like yeah Uh, what did you buy that i don't know how to yeah i'm not sure who's doing all the measurement um (laughs) yeah but uk is a really good example because it's so heavily financialized your article notes that you know, the US does make more stuff than the UK. So it notes that because you noted it when you edited it oh. the first time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Um, but yeah, if you want to compare I don't want to do Singapore because Singapore actually does make stuff to the surprise of everybody really? on the planet. Yeah. Huh. Um the, the What does what does Singapore make? Yeah, they do um biopharmaceuticals they do okay. uh semiconductors so they do what's called higher value added stuff um you know and like uh Hajun chang the former director of my center likes to say like even switzerland is a brand no sorry yeah switzerland is a really man- manufacturing heavy economy it's just that it's sitting on a pile of money laundered money and so right. it looks big by comparison to the watches and chocolate that you guys buy on that's mass. that's right. one of the 27 things they won't tell you about capitalism <laughs> i think you mean 23 but yeah that's tw- <laughs> i can't remember how many it was it was a weird number he should have picked yeah. 25. Is this a reference to it's a book, book that he wrote yeah, yeah. oh okay 23 right. things they don't tell you about capitalism 23 is such a bad number pick 25. no that's that's the number of um fuck the basketball player it's like a lucky number in sport oh what he I don't know. I'll, one day, if I get a chance, I'll ask him why it's 23. Um, but, you know, the UK, Luxembourg, who else launders money? I- who else launders? Everyone launders. Uh, um, Ireland. Ireland. Ireland is a ninth, like, yeah, ninth highest for, like, private property laws in the world. Or yeah, and then people, like, countries like Liechtenstein. Yeah. So, so, in this case, does that mean that the highest stage of capitalism is just money laundering? So, okay. Great that you pulled yes. it back to that. Because uh, if you took look at Lenin's kind of like stages of capitalism, I think, and it, it, mirror, it mirrors a bit of what Marx and some of the other theories came. You know, you make stuff. Um, eventually, you eventually you develop the monopolies and monopolies uh, along with corporations or conglomerates that own multiple things. Eventually, it got to a stage where banks, and I think this was mainly a German phenomenon. I didn't read up whether it happened in the UK, but basically banks started owning more stuff. And so there would be groups where, for instance, it looked like Japan, I guess, there'd be a bank that would own factories. And sometimes there would be multiple banks owning overlapping factories. And these Mm. could form into like business groups that would like, for instance, hold the monopoly on, like there would be, I forgot the Lenin quote, but basically like- Is this like vertical integration? It is like- Vertical integration just means you're looking at the process, but uh. banks bought each other's stuff, um, and so there was a good deal of overlap. So they would develop monopolies and syndicates, and so there was a good deal of coordination. That was monopoly capitalism. Financial right? incest, I, I like to call it. That's one way to think about it, yeah. They sat on each other's boards. And so the next stage after that, because what happens in monopolies, and they they, they notice this really early. I'll just try and do a the quick version. When you monopolize everything, you get to set the price. Usually, 
you set the price high, you don't set the price low. Right. Dumb move to set it low. When you set the price high, you get what are called super profits, right? Because you got to set it above its production, way above mm. what it's cost to produce. I can see the graph now. Yeah. <laughs> so when when you make super profits, you you accumulate money really fast, right? When when you accumulate mm. money really fast, you're also producing pretty efficiently. Means that you don't have to build that many new factories. Right? In the past, you might have been mm. adding five factories every year. Now you add one factory a year because demand is barely growing. You're barely finding new markets and you're sitting on a pile of money. That means Is that because your profits are so high? Yeah. So, so like that's why demand isn't growing? Yeah, because they're just sitting because on the, the money. Because so much, sorry. Uh, and you bet... I mean, workers might make a little more money, but they're not making the same amount that you are making at that rate. You know? So there'll be less demand in the market. They're sitting on a ton of money. The logical thing is to find new places to put that money, the export of capital, right? Right. So this is where we start to talk about... So this is when we talk about like new frontiers for capital. Yeah. And that's why, you know, in, in Lenin's book on imperialism, like the game the banks like to play was like, okay, we are going to give you, Argentina, a new railway. We're going to give you the loan for it. But the condition is yeah. you've got to use our workers and our materials. So they made all the money and somebody owes them. On top of that, Argentina owes the money. So, mm -hmm. you know, this was the way the export of capital game or imperialism was played. Um, where we get to the financialization of all of that is that I guess eventually there was a way to make it efficient. I don't know if this is the original narrative, but I see it as the way that it's more efficient because you know in the event that you gave argentina that loan you gave them the railway it's kind of done and then whoops revolution happens you're not getting your money back ah. right but be and because it's a physical thing you gave them as opposed to if you just give money the rate the the speed at which it comes back to you is pretty high because they don't, you know, you don't need to first give them the railway and do all the hand waving uh -huh, and move uh -huh. the stuff and all that. So it seems to me that the speed at which this extraction is happening requires that we reach this financial stage where they can be like, all right, we just wired a hundred million in, uh, in financial instruments to you. Could you wire us a hundred and one million back for the goods we just gave you? The speed so, at which extraction is happening is just speeding up, and this is just like the latest stage. Maybe we'll come up with a new one. So, so when we talk about extraction in this way, are we even extracting labor and materials? It's tied so far down the chain that the answer is still somewhat yes. Right. Yeah, because it ha I mean, it has to be yes, right? I it has to be yes. So, so let's let me just try and give a quick like um, a U.S. example, right? Uh huh. So the average poor person in the US took a bad loan from the bank to buy a house, mm -hmm. right? So they tried to, they would service... Like a loan they would never be able to pay back. Correct. So in the US, just a quick, just to, just a quick sidebar, there would be uh, the predatory loans that would give you like zero interest for the first two years. And then after the second year, it would jump to like a ridiculous number, like 12%. Yeah. Right? Um but they were, I think they would ask you to still pay the base amount without interest or something. So the bank still got something. So you would pay the bank using the money you would make as a plumber, maybe. 
right? Right. And so the bank, when the bank repossesses your house after you fail to pay, they just got a house and the money that you gave them and you're left with nothing, right? Right, right. So this is the way that it's still tied to the economy because, you know, you're a plumber, right? Arguably. It's still tied to like mater- the material economy. Yeah, but it's so far down the chain because the guy who yeah. gave you the mortgage is a mortgage provider that sold the loan to an investment bank. The investment yeah, yeah, bank yeah. sold it to another investment bank. And yeah. that investment bank sold it to some rich, maybe like, you know, a Rothschild or somebody yeah, of that yeah, caliber. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jeremy's doing anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> who else? <laughs> so, no, that, that actually, that, that, that really helps. Yeah, explain it to me. Um, yeah, but I got it. But it's not tied to production. So in that example, right? right. Maybe in that example, but but that plumbing still is tied to production in a sense, right? Does, because the is it like it's the the only because uh, for me, right? The, the what actually links the like uh, the plumbing bit slash the physical labor with the financial sort of chain that Jeremy's laid out is 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 like the person, right? That the, well, the plumber? I, yeah, like, is the plumber. The labor of the plumber. Yeah, so, like, the, the, the plumber could do any job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and have yeah. this. So, in, 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 he could be involved in, like, uh, obviously, I don't know why the plumber is male. Uh, the plumber could be involved in, it, 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 maybe they're not a plumber, right? Maybe they work in IT. Right. Yeah. So now it's mm. now it's the work that they do in IT is is, is is related to all that stuff. So, like, or maybe they work in an ore processing plant, which actually processes like metal Stuff, and shit yeah. like that. It could, yeah. it could go either way. So, or so, like the so, IT, the IT place that that person works for is uh, does the IT for the machines in the ore processing, there, for example, but, but right? What, what, what I guess I'm I'm sort of trying to say is like. I see why it's sort of yes and no. Like you can be doing stuff that isn't literal, like manual labor. So like or manual production yeah, or like yeah, or like material yeah, production material extraction. Production. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess that's. I, I, I don't know. This is a, a completely separate topic, but maybe that's a it's an automation thing. Oh god! God, <laughs> god let's not go there. Um, goes down a really long cut. rabbit hole. Um, so, so this is kind of what we tried to get at a little earlier, which is that almost all work is still simultaneous. Okay, right. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm getting it more now. Right. So, or I'm I'm being able to articulate it more now, um, which is that everything is simultaneously in service of both material production and. Uh, financialized financial capital, capital yeah yes. yes those two things there's like this this rubber band stretched out like so fucking far but everything in between it is the entire economy yeah um but i think that's that's one way to look at it right uh-huh. that that you look at the web and see you know i think samai mentioned the way his money would whiz around the world and whoever it mm. is but i guess the other way to look at it the way that guy jit also mentions mm-hmm. another sort of alternative lens That's to look Ajahn at jit for you yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can't call him by his nickname um is the way power structures are set up you know how the how governments in these countries are sort of orienting the economy they're setting right. policy the way they want the financial sector to grow because they understand the rate of return to it is higher. 
And right. so another way to think about the shift from making stuff to finance is also the way states have begun to reorient then policy because, you know, finance just makes, makes way more money because it makes money so quickly. Yeah. Mm. So, so okay, that, that brings us nicely forward to um, this global north-south divide, which is kind of the point of the mm. entire article. So we've got a nice little graph here. Where is it? Somewhere near the top of the article. So yeah, 73% of global wealth uh, is held by 14% of the population uh, between, well, yeah, the global north. So, sorry, Western and Central Europe, bit of the Baltics in there, bit of Greece, um, USA, Canada, Japan, Korea, Australia, and uh, New Zealand. Um, so, you know, obviously we're not saying, you know, this is 73% of the global wealth is in that 14% of the population. Obviously we are aware that, again, it's like the the 1% thing, right? Mm -hmm. Still owns the vast, vast majority of that wealth. We're just making that clear. But the point is, that is where the wealth actually is. Physically, right? yes. That's, that's well, or digitally, it, we say physically, it's still kind <laughs> of theoretical, right? On a national right? basis. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like, like if, we, so, if we described it, not via geographical territory, but by national ownership. Who owns, yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think, or like where at least where those companies are that own the wealth, or yeah, whatever. Or well, the companies, in, uh, or the banks. How about the banks? Yeah, They're all in Barbados, sure. though. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Wow, Barbados, the highest stage of bourgeois national. The Seychelles. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the money hangs out there, not the people. Mm. So. Um, Sipping my. And yeah, the rest. So the rest of the world, uh, twenty percent, twenty-seven percent of global wealth, and eighty-six percent of the population which is quite staggering um so that you know there clearly is this uh global north south wealth divide mm -hmm. and as well you know again i really want to make it clear there is obviously that 99 sorry there is obviously that one percent that does own all the wealth which is in those western countries however even when we look at like standards of living it it still translates pretty well uh not to mention standards of living and standards of labor standards of work mm -hmm. yeah um and this also brings us to that other article which we also well we translated it on dindang um which was by oh yeah our man jason hickel mm. the aid in reverse one yeah yeah especially oh. about like the capital flight i think that bit was like yeah so Functionally, he's just talking about the fact that, you know, uh, the the West extracts far more in terms of, like, financial flows because of things like interest payments. Um, mm. Probably, I probably in that figure, I don't know how, I really want to talk to the guy how he how he got these figures because they don't have citations on them. No, I think you do. I think I looked for them. Like, you have to, like, really follow it through that Norwegian study. Um, oh, God. I think I, ha I, think I have no, it. No, I didn't. Yeah. The Norwegian study. Yeah. yeah, I put it in the doc yeah, here. Yeah. I've got it highlighted. That's right. That's, Ooh, right. That's okay. where I got it. Yeah. Okay, I'll go and check it out. Um, oh, if it's unrecorded, um, yeah, that's those are those are a lot of the you know uh, Thai generals and Malaysian aristocrat money that's just flying overseas. Yeah. Um, but he also makes note of what, the interest payments, the loans that are given mm. to countries after the West bankrupts them, and then ask them. The IMF shows up like, hey. 
you need a loan because your con- your currency's gone to shit. Um, but it's a loan, so you have to pay it back. Um, that kind of stuff. And I think, yeah. you know, of course, like, we learn, like, there's stuff like F- all the African countries that took part in IMF loans all got shafted, like, terribly mm. hard. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's just the article just illustrates the amount that the, you know, West takes from the global south and then it gives it back in aid. Um, mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, what was the Peru line, that guy, like, uh, no more poor people in a rich country? It really illustrates the idea that, you know, the south is rich if you think about the natural resources that are still mm. there after years of colonization and plunder. You know, it's still rich in natural resources, but, you know, it's just not showing up in the hands of the people in the global south. Yeah, this is something that, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, right, which is that, like, the global south is where the vast bulk of this material production is actually happening, mm-hmm. right? So when we were talking earlier, well, maybe beans was a bad example. When we were talking earlier about, like, where where does the food come from to feed the Uncle Western Ben's workers? Rice. Where does Uncle Ben's rice come from? Does it come from Thailand? No idea, but that's a question we should... Look it up, asking. look it up, look it up right now. Okay. Um, so, like, yeah. I was going to guess the f- US quickly, but... <laughs> Maybe, that's a good point. No, summer rice does come from Thailand. I've seen it quite a few times in the car. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uncle Ben's Rice Factory has a factory near Antwerp. Yeah, factory. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah fucking yeah, rice grown the, in the Netherlands. Come on. No, I know. I'm looking where the rice Oh, no, is that from. Belgium? Belgium. Sorry. Sorry, Flemish. Sorry. It's okay. I mean, the Benelux countries will forgive you for they never remembering which They're one is what. <laughs> They're coming for me. Um, so, yeah, the point is, the, yeah, is it like all of our lovely things that we have in the West, or the vast, vast, vast bulk of them, like absolutely comes from the global south which absolutely includes china so Mm -hmm. i did this kind of experiment where i just like looked around my flat and i just pulled all the different bits and pieces i can do it right now look uh my jewel was made in vietnam you're gonna guess vietnam one more things are made in vietnam china Mm. hmm um my google phone where would that have been made china china yeah okay what about the the glass for the phone that was definitely from china china's one of the biggest glass manufacturers Mm. um we all know about the coltan which powers our lovely or does whatever to our lovely circuits in our phone which primarily comes from the congo the lithium in my phone's battery which probably comes from brazil or from bolivia yeah yeah it's tantalum tellurium and tungsten Right, and that like makes my phone able to work, right? Yeah, Yeah. and so these and where are they from? What are the primary sources of those Uh, three? Are they? I can't remember, but they're all Central African countries. Definitely not the UK. I think we'll definitely not the UK. So, so when we say like my phone comes from China, well, sure it comes from China, but it also comes from all those other global South countries, um, some of which have had very uh, (laughs) noticeable coups. Mm conducted by the west yep uh or with the support of the west at the very least we could say so all, all of this wealth right and my phone is probably other than my laptop is probably the most uh, expensive valuable thing i own mm-hmm. um so when we think about the wealth that i own as a westerner that wealth 
came from the global south, right? I guess parts of it is also the way the way the money sort of flows through the system, because that this goes back to an idea um, that's hinted at in the essay that you know the people in in the UK are living off the labor of the global south. So one way to think yeah. about it is, you know. Um, if the I U- think it's more than hinted at in the essay. I think it's screamed. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think the chain might not be so obvious. So okay, um, let's say, uh, let's say you're you're a school teacher, right? Your fees come from the school. The yeah. school is paid by someone who's an executive at a think tank. Where does the think so tank a private school? Yeah. Where does the think tank get its money? The think tank gets its money from Shell. Right. Uh-huh. Oh, or maybe not Shell. Let's do let's do Apple, right? Okay. And Apple's extracting wealth from the global south. So you as your you as the teacher technically are getting salary from this long chain of stuff. Right. right? So that's that's one way to think about like how how you visualize the labor aristocracy, you know? Yeah, because, oh, this first time we've bloody brought this word up and that's really important when we should have earlier. But yeah, this is what you were saying or we were saying earlier about how at the end of the day, wealth is still tied to material, even after this long fucking rubber band or whatever chain we wanted to call it, right? Yeah, but to quickly interject, like, um, and the, the need for this kind of labor aristocracy, this defense is a combination of both some workers that the British elite keep on life support, the people who make milk and beef, <laughs> because they know that if they... Can, we, can, we, can I pause you and we'll go back? Can, we, can you explain what labour aristocracy means before, Ooh. like, the def- define it first, before we uh, ex- get into that point? Okay, so um, in the traditional Marxian sense, or when, when Marx used it, it probably referred to the privileged worker in a lot of these places he was referring to the fact that you know colonial extraction allowed more wealth to be accumulated in the imperial core and therefore workers could be paid better um, as a way to pacify them this was one way i think that's that's how lenin lenin used it Uh, i believe marx used it to describe the workers typically unionized workers and it would be the high up union people who Mm. actually didn't work at the factories anymore Right, and then as far as I'm aware, please comment I, me and correct me. I don't if I'm even wrong, know if but... he used it. That's the thing. I thought it was the reverse. Interesting. I, I only th- I only know that Lenin used it, but I think Kortsky used it as well. But we don't okay. listen to Kortsky. Okay, <laughs> some Marxists. So so <laughs> when we when we referenced it in the articles, Samai was the one that found the uh, Lenin reference, which we quoted, which yeah. is when basically Lenin's definition of it was the that one was an imperialism. Said, that, that was that's that's mm. where I got that from. That's probably yeah. where I got got that as well. Yeah, mm. I think imperialism was the first main like uh, imperialism was the first uh, uh, instance of uh, the phrase in its commonly used um, sense. Going to have a great time editing this to make us sound like extreme, <laughs> extremely intelligent. <laughs> well, apparently I never do. So, um, yeah. So, Go on. Sorry, Jeremy. So labor aristocracy is the plump Western workers kept on life support uh, to keep the country going where uh, in the imperial court, which uh, and us workers in, in, in the imperial court are, are growing fat on the spoils of imperialism. Yeah, and, and this goes 
this goes to something I wanted to bring up, which which was David Graeber's bullshit jobs. You know, mm. like if you were to try and measure the number of bullshit jobs, I'm sure it's higher in the UK than anywhere else in the world. Um, maybe except like Luxembourg and again all these yeah. other like money like laundering countries, highest major economy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the proliferation of these bullshit jobs is because you need to expand the the labor aristoc- aristocracy. You know, and to mm. keep keep them at a certain amount because and oh and again to double back the, the fact that they will protect certain sectors they'll they'll make sure you know milk and beef maybe isn't totally exposed to the market otherwise all the people in the uk who make milk and beef will just get destroyed a bit like mm. how all the people who made corn in mexico got destroyed by american corn mm. um and so this is like what we said in the article which is like and that allows the imperial core in this context, the UK, to be like a safe place to put all of that wealth that we're talking about. Yeah, it, it keep you know it's it's the it maintains the that Gramscian notion of hegemony. You know, the middle class that will defend the capitalist class, even yep. though you know technically the the proletariat technically they're to, workers. I mean the pro the oh yeah technically they're workers, but the people who want to storm the gate, you know are kept far away because there's a solid buffer of this labor aristocracy. Mm. The, the other thing I remember being something I was thinking about a lot heavily during uh, when Brexit was first uh, becoming um, a reality was Karl Marx's address um, to some convention about free trade in the, mm. and Engels like, wrote down... Uh, he did a thing on what he said. But uh, basically... The, the the relationship between protectionism and free trade and, and, and working class interests is very interesting because mm. ideally the worker agrees with protectionism because it ensures their um their their livelihoods, right? But it also um maintains their misery. So that's mm. one aspect. Free trade, on the other hand, will fuck their shit up. But it will make it better for their revolutionary sort of education because mm. they will come to learn the beast that is uh, capitalism better. Isn't isn't this what the Angela Nagel got kind of cancelled over, which was arguing that uh, not letting in like migrants from Mexico was good for American workers? What? Because it was like protectionist for yeah, because like then the the migrants from like Latin America, let's say, uh, wouldn't wouldn't. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, undercut I, their wages and stuff like that. It's yeah. this same like yeah. yeah. Also, sorry if my cat is making noise. She's right by the microphone and she is licking herself quite loudly. I am not going to do anything about it. So okay, so so earlier. I said the thing about how the wealth of Western workers, for example, the wealth of me having this phone and this laptop, um, is wealth that has been extracted from the global south. Mm-hmm. Was there another way to look at it? I think that's the way I would look at it because how how else mm. how else does capital arrive in the hands of northern workers, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be the like I said, the people who make beef on on government life support or mm. people who work bullshit jobs or people who work um, genuine service sector jobs that services people who work in these uh, financial sector or global yeah. value chain coordination kind of stuff. So there is a chain to it, yeah. But that's, mm. that's the way to kind of understand where your money comes from. 
So, 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 what would then be the kind of like socialist reformist? Because I think what we're getting at here is obviously like revolution is the only thing which can overturn this, and mm-hmm. it needs to come from the global south. I think that's like we haven't actually explicitly said that yet, and it is the thrust of the article. Um, but I think that's pretty clear after what we've said already. But like, what what would then be the non-revolutionary socialist response? Because I know this is something which. Uh, Jeremy, you're quite passionate about, which is the um, being angry at the reformist socialist left. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think you mean the reformist socialist Western left, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, if they think that they are able to negotiate a state, and this is going back to that Ralph Miliband idea that the whole state is built in a way that every process is dependent on capitalist accumulation. And that accumulation comes from the global south. However capital is accumulated. In the past it was industrial, now it's financial. But I think Ralph Miliband, when he wrote this probably in the 60s, you know, understood that you needed to radically transform the state. And that's not on the agenda on for a lot of Western leftists. I think that yeah, a lot of a lot of this can't be easily changed. You know, and I think there's this there's this idea that you, we just need to take power, turn the state in the right direction, and then we're set. You know, mm. there there isn't that much thought to one reforming the state. Although again, Ralph Miliband did bring it up, and I think it's good that his protege Leo Panitch starts starting to move the Jacobin and Tribune types in the UK and the US. But I think not enough thought is given to this, even in rev- revolutionary circles or some extent because I think the criticism of the Bolsheviks was that they took over a state apparatus that was functionally pointed in one direction they didn't dis- I think they destroyed parts of it they didn't destroy all of it um, but that's a debate for another time so I think they don't take seriously the challenge of governing yeah and this challenge of decoupling or s- sort of bringing economic justice to the global south is not being seriously thought of in the way that they would do it. Because, you know, if you think about just turning the country into more cooperatives, they're not, they, they haven't thought about where the iPhones are coming from. What are yeah. you talking about? The more cooperatives, or, or can the I, more socialisty it is. Can I make this argument, which is something which, uh, let's just say, a Western quite high profile person said to me which was when i put this argument to them is uh what about you know okay yeah i understand this material production supply chain stuff is all incredibly unfair blah 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 but like why can't the person who is uh extracting the the minerals in in congo be paid the same amount as me and we and we kind of start it there that would be a more equitable world, but that would involve really destroying the I mean, really destroying the system and building it from the ground up again in a radic in a radical way that even a revolution doesn't guarantee. Yeah. And that requires some serious thought because I think I hinted in my response that, you know, it would just to get some semblance of justice, we could go back to the new international economic order set up by the non aligned movement, basically trying to give global south countries a better deal on the raw materials they were giving Mm. the west that's a start 
you know but that's that's a really small piece of it right because the of the way the value chain is set up right yeah paying the guy in the congo would be one thing but i think if you still if the western countries or what's called the semi periphery so basically i guess yeah to to introduce uh, so Samai seems to know what i'm talking about but just for everybody's sake semi periphery countries are countries that support the core countries mm. you know um and sometimes Romania co- Greece ooh Greece is an interesting case. I don't know. I think okay, of it, fine. I think fine. of it as a periphery scrap, country. Scrap Romania. <laughs> Sorry, scrap Greece. Uh, fine. Uh, Turkey. Yeah, Spain. Uh, Romania. Okay, yeah, Spain. Yeah. So semi-periphery countries, I guess some in some instances, act in their own self-preservation, but also do the bidding of core countries. Mm. You know? Um, yeah, you'd have to reconfigure every part of the chain to pay it mm. equitably. And doing that, is going to be complicated because you're going to have to ask everybody in the chain, like, hey, let's try and fix this. Um, mm. Because what Western countries and semi-peripheries countries have done is that, um, let's say let's say we do the can of beans, right? The beans mm. cost almost nothing. The tin costs almost nothing. The paper costs almost nothing. The sauce, nothing mm-hmm. also. Who makes the most money in the chain is the person that puts it together right so you'd have to in the chain of these five different countries you mean now right now yeah yeah so right you'd have to reconfigure it internationally in a way that if you wanted everybody to be paid equally everybody has to agree with it and that mm. and that requires you know not a, i mean it requires a, a a unified global revolution right that and it requires your even if let's say that chain happened in your na- in your national jurisdiction, you need to get everybody to agree to that. And the skilled mm. workers who assemble it are going to be like get lost. The people who mine it are clearly less good than us who assemble it. And then you know you'd have to give some serious consideration to the way that these fights go down because even in the Soviet Union there was there were fights between skilled laborers and unskilled laborers. Right, this is a fight that happens in trade unions now and then as well. So mm. you'd have to give some serious thought as to how this can be addressed socially and economically. And I don't. This might be too forward, but yeah, you do need to give this some serious thought. Otherwise, you, you let's say, if there was a successful revolution in the UK tomorrow, like you said, you you just hold all the pieces of paper that says somebody owes me money. That's it. Yeah. So this is and this is. What we said in the article, which is that if something like that did happen, you would have this kind of inverse perestroika in the West, which would mean the evisceration of Western livings or Northern living standards, right? Or they could hold on to those pieces of paper and keep collecting the money. Yeah. And become the bourgeoisie of the planet, collectively, everyone in the UK. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, I could totally imagine a scenario where we're like, okay, Britain wants to go full commie. Um, the semi-periphery country will be like, all right, we're the new Britain. We're going to collect the money as though we hold those pieces of paper because they're next in the chain. There's no, yeah. Mm. That's another way this could kind of play out. I don't know. Right. I, I guess what's pretty clear is that that's not going to happen tomorrow, um, <laughs> nor in my lifetime. Um, and I think a good way to kind of end this is looking at kind of like we've talked about how capitalism develops and we've talked for a fucking long time as well Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I want to just kind of play out this idea that is like the dream of the Thai economic planners and the Malay economic planners, which is we're all going to be Singapore or we're all going to be the UK one day. We're all going to be nice, fat service workers someday. Um, is That's not possible, right? Like, is it? It's not. And there's a few ways uh. to think about this. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you've heard of the flying geese model. So basically, you know, yeah. in the lead position, again, for your audience, Japan now makes steel and now it wants to move on to making washing machines. So what it'll do, it'll, it'll sell a set of countries the machines to make steel. So it sold them to like... Uh, or it will go there and open the factories, right? Oh yeah, it'll finance the factories moving over, you know, so that they yeah. get they get a good good chunk of the pie. So it sold those machines, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, when Japan wants to move on to flat screen, I mean, from flat screen TVs down to cars, then they're going to pass it down the chain further. But what people are realizing is that that chain has kind of stopped. Um in the sense that South Korea still makes cars. So South Korea didn't didn't give up making cars just because it wanted to move on to IT and make K-pop or whatever. It just continued making cars because they made lots of money making cars. So this idea that everybody can be a Japan or South Korea, the dream is kind of stuck, right? Mm. People are not passing the technological baton down the chain. So the dream that Thailand and Malaysia are going to be like Singapore might be a completely dead one from an economic sense yeah is it is it even like theoretically possible i mean okay look let's i really don't want to talk about automation but don't don't talk about it man (laughs) and that's something we mentioned in the article as well is that like it is fascinating how automation kind of used to be about getting workers out of the like material economy in terms of the material production right um and so those technologies exist. How they're not even bothering, like, I don't know, whatever, being implemented in places like Thailand mm-hmm. or in, in Cambodia or Burma, you, you still see workers working with their hands yeah. all the fucking time when the technology exists. And then now uh, automa- automation development in, in the global north is focused on, like, getting service workers off of the off of the payroll which is quite fascinating (laughs) but i don't want to go into that too much yeah i think the point is like the question is not is it possible through automation but even if there was automation would it be possible to make a country like thailand a service economy and and when i say a country like thailand i mean a country that low down in the capitalist development um geese formation or whatever that to be able to move up to the next I mean, the next stage of production, you need Mm. a product to sell. Unfortunately, all the product categories are taken. Cars, semiconductors, lots Mm. of places already dominate these markets. I mean, the the production of these goods. Mm. What would radically shift that is that if you had a brand new set of customers, uh, if we lock off the possibility of going to Mars and finding, uh, yeah, or aliens (laughs) you can sell it to. Um, If we lock off that possibility of going to outer space, if somehow magically the 1% decided to give all their money to Africa, then maybe you'd get enough of a new market. A consumer base. Yeah. But that's not happening. So so what if the aliens like Namprik, you know? What is, I that? Think. <laughs> what is that? It's like it's ch- chili, the stuff it's like you use to make 
It's like the paste, paste that you yeah, use to make like curries, well. yeah. or you can like have a dry one that you can just eat. It's very nice. Okay. You, there's like the dipping lamprick. Yeah. Very good as well. You, yep. Okay, we'll have to try that at the bunker at some point. I, I have some in the bunker right now. Okay, we'll do that next time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if if new markets don't open up, there's there's mm. just little room to do this. So to think that every country can be another financial capital is just ludicrous. Um, well, that's certainly what the Thai elite thinks. I remember Prayu insisting that Thailand was going to become Singapore in the next ten to twenty years. Can, can, can I can I can I mention um, uh, something about Thailand Sichuan? Um, uh, I was oh, yeah. I, I was watching this um, this uh, Western made uh, Thai series on Netflix, and um, there was one bit where this guy is just like, oh yet. I love Thailand 4.0, but he said it in um, he said everything else in Thai, but then this bit in English specifically, and I don't know. I just thought it was really funny. Wasn't that so? Wait, Thailand 4.0 is like the economic futurism it's, program it's by like, the government, um, right? I swear it's like mm. it, I, I swear it's like okay. India 2020 or whatever, whatever that was. Yeah, it's like, it's like trying 4.0. to yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like trying to make Thailand like a technology hub or some shit yeah, or like bangkok at least i think I, I there were a bunch of signs on my bts station that i never looked at yeah. um, <laughs> i just thought it was adverts like for 4g right you know, like. that's a start yeah but why um, would they advertise i don't know it seems futile to advertise that to the masses they'd be like oh, okay we can look forward to a future and then they just go back to working their janitor job i don't know yeah or driving motorcycle delivering food and Indefinitely. That's more bleak than the janitor job, if I'm going to be honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, back to, back to the original point of the question. Like, yeah, so, you know, in terms of countries are going to have less and less to offer people, you know, and that, that gives some of us some hope that there might be some revolutionary potential. All of them are hitting roadblocks, honestly. Mm. Uh, and it's particular in Southeast Asia because I think a lot of us are kind of stuck a lot of, I think Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia are kind of stuck in this like middling kind of economic growth while the government just keeps promising more and more. The only mm. places that are getting off better are places like Vietnam because they're riding like the China coattails. Um, mm. But everybody else is just stuck in like an internal, an internal loop of like, we'll get there and then we never get there. Yeah, I think, I think the only slight bit of optimism I have is uh when i've been looking at the kind of choke points in the supply chain like i was watching a documentary about the the evergrand boat that got stuck in the canal at suez yeah. and i was oh, like yeah. oh the big holy shit boat, yeah. yeah like do you know how many people actually like staff those boats which carry billions mm -hmm. of dollars how many tell me worth of goods what do you think is it is it like, like the okay, really big ones? So it's so so it's is it an insane number because of how many it is or how few it is? I want you to guess. Fifty. Yeah. Is it about fifty? Way! Yeah. Forty, fifty, sixty. We'll we'll staff one of like the absolutely unbelievably huge boats. Damn. That's smaller than I expected. Yeah, that's way smaller. Exactly. Not to mention even the slightest little thing that goes wrong at some of these choke points, like the Suez Canal, can cause unfathomable difficulties and supply chain fuck-ups and and then you know i've read these some of these discussions which mostly happen online and i have had some of these discussions in real life which is like oh ultimately the western proletariat will be hurt by that because we won't get our treats and our biscuits oh and, our stuff like, and our stuff like our, our new phones and our headphones my and, tea and cakes my new car. 
And you know what? To be honest, there's a point where it's like, okay, tough shit. I don't care anymore. <laughs> um, but then they also made the point, oh, well, then, you know, the workers in the global south don't get paid. And it's like, fuck you. Fuck you. That's not that why you care. That, that, they just want to okay, get number headphones. one, that's not why you care. Yeah. And number one, they're not fucking getting paid already. That's true. They're bad. You know? so true. I like, and I like this phrase. Okay, I'm going a bit off topic here because I'm annoyed. But I like this phrase which uh, people are talking about with the whole, um, you know, World War Three, blah, 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 boring. Um, <laughs> I've seen it in a few places and people say, oh, it's going to be the end of the world. I like the people who are saying in response to that, it's like, oh, no, the end of the world has already happened. For, like, most of the world, other than you. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what, the, the, yeah. the living conditions for huge swaths of the global population is what you would consider to be the end of the world. It happened, Think about right? countries on fire, like ago. Iraq or Libya, mm-hmm. uh, Yemen. Yemen. Ye- Yemen's mm-hmm. probably literally on fire, too, so. I mean, even, like, uh, Iran, for example, like, mm-hmm. a country which is theoretically, like, it's stable, it's got a stable government and stuff like that. Sanctions is absolutely starving it to complete death. Yeah. Um, and then, not to mention, like countries like Bangladesh, which don't have that kind of material product to offer people other than like labor doing garment stuff. Mm. And so, what they can just starve. Eh, doesn't make a difference. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, the end of the world is already happened for large swaths of the population. Mm-hmm. So they don't get paid, mate. They're not getting paid already. Yeah. Fuck you. I guess the point I'm trying to make is uh, let's get forty guys together. We'll go to the old. Uh, we'll start. We'll get on a ship. Yeah, we'll kidnap uh, we'll kidnap a, a ship and then we'll like use we'll, that we'll money to fund an Tom arms Hanks. um yeah man see saying all the commies out there need to get their boats become pirates go yeah. get ships yeah literally yes I am literally <laughs> saying that get, yes. get, get, get alright chairs arm chairs listeners get your nautical shoes get your boat shoes on we're doing it this is a cool um, alright Jeremy Thank you very much. We've gone on for like yeah. what, two hours, 15 minutes. Um, always a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to have you explain the things to us, which we kind of know, but we kind of... Yeah, I always learn with Jeremy. That's the best. Yeah. That's that's the thing. Literally. I always learn. So, appreciate that. I hope it's been clear for your audience. And yeah, well, I'm sorry. This is going to be tough to edit. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's always tough to edit. Um... <laughs> Yeah, make sure to check out uh, dindang.com forward slash support. And also uh, Malaysia Muda and Imagine Malaysia. Sure. And um, not the Lawang hashtag, hashtag, which is dead, um, which we should talk about someday. The, oh, you mean the Lawan the organization? Fuck, I always say it wrong. Yeah, Lawan. Yeah. We should do that at some point, yeah. We should do that at some point. Yeah, and uh, like somebody said, give us more. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. All right, folks. Uh, hope we've made yep yeah, some stuff. Okay. Bye. ลืมใจจนยืนฝัน